You good? Yep. You ready? Oh, sorry, I didn't realize you were ready. Sorry, I was waiting for you to pull it up. Yeah, okay, no, let's go, let's go. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's February 2022 and you've probably all had just about as much winter as you can stand, but it's still cold outside. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, and thank you for that introduction. It's good to be back. I can't believe we're on episode 22 of this. That's, yeah, I know. What a milestone. But yeah, let's uh, get into it. We aim to provide an old-school film-goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash Double Real, where we list all the films we discussed on the podcast and much more besides. Here's what's coming up in episode 22. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're discussing Sam Peckinpah's still-controversial home invasion thriller, Straw Dogs. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience which this month is the unusual Nick Cage vehicle, Pig. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 22, we're looking at the efforts of Tim Burton, Kevin Smith and others to make Superman lives. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the 2011 remake of this month's classic film Straw Dogs. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 22, we take a deep dive into the film career of Hollywood's stalwart, Walter Hill. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Chris on Twitter gets in touch about Licorice Pizza, which we featured on last month's episode. Most I've enjoyed a film in the last year. Mike S., friend of the pod, says, Enjoying the podcast, looking forward to your monthly Kubrick reviews this year. We're talking about some new releases this month, including Belfast. Karen, Hannah and Michelle all loved it, but one says, I'd like to watch it for not for 20 bucks. I think it's streaming in the US at the moment and they're charging a fair bit for it because a lot of people are staying away from the cinema, so that's probably what that's about. The other new release we're talking about is Nightmare Alley, which got a lot of people commenting. That hasn't been reflected in the box office, unfortunately. A lot of positive comments. Noah says, pure genius. Annie says, top-notch everything. Tiffany and Sarah both preferred Crimson Peak, apparently, but almost all positive feedback. Speaking of which, on our Kubrick film for this month, Rona says it's one of my favourite heist films, and Bo says my favourite Kubrick, and really works well on a double bill with Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, yeah, that's a good shout. Our hidden gem pig, uh, Matt says, thought it was great, albeit sombre movie about grieving and a surprising focus on the high-end culinary world. Cage honestly should have been nominated for his performance in this. That was the general consensus among the messages, and Dan added, I'd really like Liam Neeson to take on something like this to mix things up a bit in his career. 
On our classic and our remake feature, Straw Dogs and Straw Dogs, Anthony says, having never seen the original, I thought the remake was decent, mainly because of Alexander Skarsgård, who is always great. A one that got away feature about Superman Lives generated quite a few comments. Uh, Frank B summed it up best with, it was either going to be a work of art or the biggest piece of garbage. I love the documentary they did about this. Uh, Tim Burton came off as a jerk. Harry gets in touch about a big conversation topic and says, I like Walter Hill, but he's declined in his later career. Last Man Standing was an abomination compared to Yojimbo. Yeah, we sort of skipped over that one and concentrated on his better films. Thanks, as always, for your messages. Even the ones we didn't have time to read out are much appreciated. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting movie watching with our busy exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year we make some film related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Uh, just a bit of self-promotion before we get into it. Uh, our other podcast, The Adamsons Versus, uh, we have uh, a new episode, 11-year-old superhero that's out now, and our next episode coming soon will be The Adamsons Versus Deliveroo. Right, after all that, um, with the first thing we always talk about in our roundup is the news. Uh, is there any news caught your eye, James? Probably Oscar nominations. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty big. It's all about the power of a dog. Got 12 nominations. Did, have you seen it? Did yeah, you, yeah. It's well, pretty t- fucking boring. Yeah, I, I've seen it. Didn't like it very much. Uh, yeah. I am genuinely... I'm, I'm quite baffled about the reception it got, except that they seem unaccountably to love Jane Campion films, and um, the uh, they seem to give huge amounts of credit for a film that I thought was not only not very good, but I've seen much better versions of that kind of story, you know? Have you not... Has she not won Oscars before Jane Campion? Um, she she won Best Adapted Screenplay for The Piano in 1993 in a that year. That was really overrated. Massively overrated. Scripts that came out that year that could have uh, could have uh, deserved a, a winner or a nomination. Naked by Mike Lee, Groundhog Day. Uh, some very good some very good films came out that year, and uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing what Piano had was it had great cinematography because they had a good cinematographer pointing his camera at New Zealand. Uh, and, the, and the music by Michael Nyman was really good. Um, and suddenly they all lost their minds about it. I mean, if it hadn't been for Schindler's List, I imagine the piano would have picked up even more Oscars that year. Yeah, that's... that's so, awesome. so they've basically done the same thing with The Power of the Dog. 12 nominations, man. I mean, we've seen we've seen that before. Do you remember when um, American Hustle got tons of nominations and then didn't win any? We'll have to see what they actually win. That but... film's really looked back on unfavorably. Because I remember <laughs> when it came out, we went to see it and we went, that was shit. Yeah, and it got a ton of nominations, and then everyone sort of reconsidered between the nominations and the um, and the actual award voting. Um, it's odd. I, I don't think that's going to happen to Power of the Dog. That seem, that film seems to have this like ridiculous momentum, and it looks like it's going to win Best Picture, and possibly Best Director. Um, Belfast has seven nominations, which is uh, very good. Um, there is uh, a lot of nominations for Dune, although that's mostly in like non-acting categories. Uh, Ridley Scott's films for la- from last year have been almost completely snubbed, including um, uh, Lady Gaga not even nominated. See, I've seen both of those films. I've seen House of Gucci in the last year, and to be honest, I don't think House of Gucci has actually been snubbed that much. 
I think the last duel has been completely snubbed. Yeah, the last duel was miles better than House of Gucci. I, I agree. I mean, I I just thought maybe because House of Gucci has got that strong sort of performance by Lady Gaga and has a lot of kind of uh, you know references to you know an interesting world that it would be. It, it, I I thought maybe if that gets some nominations and last year doesn't at least really really Scott got some um, uh, credit even if it wasn't for his best film that year, but for last year, I mean ju- I, I, I might as well come to this now because the BAFTA nominations are about the same as the Oscars apart from a few extra nominations for Bond so we might as well kind of you know hop over that. In the Razzie nominations, Ben Affleck gets a worst supporting actor nomination for last year. Really? I don't think that's warranted at all. Um, Unless it's something to do with his hair, because he does have shit hair in the film. The hair, or maybe the the accents aren't great from the American actors in that film. Yeah, That's yeah. What's most noticeable? But I didn't think he was. I thought he no. played. A, I thought he played a proper arsehole. Yeah. yeah, I I don't. I think it would have been odd if he like won best supporting actor for that, given all the other people that have done films last year. But it's very odd for him to be nominated as one of the worst performances of last year because I really don't think he was. I thought he played that particular character quite well. Jared Leto gets a well-deserved Razzie nomination, of course. Um, for House of Gucci? Yeah. My Facebook feed has been filled with like these sponsored ads of House of Gucci's official page saying, Jared Leto gives a delectable performance. Please consider him for your nomination. Yeah, well, that, fucking shit. the film companies always try and do that, and I think they were emboldened by him getting a Screen Actors Guild nomination, but he's got a Razzie, which I think he's got sewn up for Worst Supporting Actor. Um <laughs> The the film the the film that's got the most uh, Razzie nominations is Diana the Musical, which oh, I haven't even watched seen. that. Yeah, I tried to watch it because I feel like it was something you had to watch. It <laughs> just to be seen to be believed, and it is it's fucking awful. You think they can't say that? They're saying yeah. that. Um, yeah, the only I'm... thing they don't do is Diana's like death. I genuinely thought they were going to have people stage acting. A car. What rhymes? Really? What rhymes with paparazzi? What rhymes with tunnel? Yeah, that genuine—that's the only thing they don't do in that. But yeah. it's just I, I, the the other thing oh. that, that that I quite enjoyed about the Razzie nomination. So they have a special category this year, which is worst performance by Bruce Willis in a movie in twenty twenty one. So it's only Bruce Willis films, and it's worst performance by him in any of those movies. And there are eight nominations to choose from. So he's in. He's given eight acting performances. They've all been nominated for a Razzie, which I quite enjoyed. I think he has stopped giving a shit about his film career. That is that is very clear. Yeah, I think he's just topping up his pension now. Um, uh, other news I saw: Nick Cage is playing Dracula in a new Universal film called Renfield. I think they're doing that thing they've done before, where they tell like the, the famous story from the angle of one of the other characters, Renfield being Dracula's uh, familiar assistant slave. But Nick Cage is playing Dracula. So all that research he spent huh. in the, the coffin in Transylvania is going to pay off. Anything else caught your eye? Um, I can't think of anything major. I think it's just the nominations. Um, did any Were there any like films, like big films and planning? I, I know that... Um, they're trying to expand the Marvel universe, but they don't really—they don't really seem to say when and where they're coming out. You know what I mean? Not where, sorry, yeah. but like when and how they're going to come out. Because some of them are just being exclusives to, um, to like Disney Plus and stuff like that. You know, the King yeah. Man, the the kind of prequel film. We watched that the other day. It was yeah. all right, but I didn't realize it was on Disney Plus it's right gone, away. It's gone straight on. Yeah. That's, yeah. Speaking of which, one of the one of the stories is that Warner is having some legal and financial problems with its twenty twenty one streaming strategy. Um, you know, they're being sued by a couple of people for, you know, being streamed instead of being uh, placed on 
you know, a proper theatrical release. Uh, it's not working out very well for them, you know, financially as well. I think they are, they've already kind of said that a lot of their films this year are going to have exclusive um, uh, theatrical releases before they um, go out to, um, you know, HBO Max. They're going to have to have a rethink of that. I mean, it's one thing during a pandemic, but they seem to have handled it really badly. Like they've pissed off a lot of the people that are working with them, like the talent that would that they might want to make films for them. And they don't seem to have worked out. If you've got a streaming strategy, right, then why would you only pay your actors, directors and everything else based on box office performance? Surely the way you keep that happy is you say, actually, we'll reward you on, on a combination of box office and streaming, right? And don't yeah. and don't allow the industry to say a film's been a flop if it hasn't made that much money in the cinema, but it's done really well on streaming. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you they might need to say actually because we've got a combined strategy of of cinemas and streaming, we're actually going to give you a combined box office based on how it's done in both both channels. You know, that's going to be the way it has to go because people aren't going to be fully comfortable going back to the cinema. I don't I don't care. I, I've been to the cinema a few times. Yeah, during. The pandemic, but I know that some folk are just going to enjoy the comfort of their own homes. But I don't know why they wouldn't just update the the figures. Yeah. It makes it like a film's flopped. It made it look like the Kingsman only made one hundred and twenty million um, in the cinemas. Um, yeah, but I mean, if you combine that with the uh, the the Disney Plus streams, I yeah. know how much. Yeah, I mean, bo- box office has been a bit a bit of an inaccurate term for a long time. I, I remember watching a well, sorry, listening to an interview with Mel Brooks about a film of his that he did back in the 80s, which was a massive flop. It's called Solar Babies. It was a complete disaster. Um, you know, he, he he was a producer of a lot of films because, you know, people would only let him direct comedy. So he thought he wants to make other types of films. And this was meant to be like a, a young adult sci-fi. It might have done a lot better now that you've got The Hunger Games and they've identified the market for it. But back then it did fucking zero business. But he took, because he's a great storyteller, he tells this great anecdote about it. it. comes out, it's a flop. He had to remortgage his house to kind of cover the budget overruns and everything else. But over the years, because cable TV came out and because like Eastern Europe opened and they suddenly wanted to watch more content on television, they got shown in all these places and then streaming. There's a 90-year-old man talking about multi-channel kind of media strategies. That film made money. So the biggest flop he ever did in his career eventually turned a small profit. So that they need... Because they need to kind of just cover that because otherwise someone's, you know, Ridley, is someone going to genuinely say to Ridley Scott, well, the last year didn't make that much money in the box office, so I'm not sure about your, um, you know, whether you should, should still make film, films. Yeah. No, fuck it. What is it. What has it done across all the ways you can watch it, you know? I think that's what they're going to have to do. Creed 3 has started filming with Michael B. Jordan directing as well as starring. And, uh, really? and, and Stallone will not be appearing in the film as Rocky this time. So I don't know any more than that. Watch this space. That could be interesting. Uh, and conti- continuing on the subject of Michael B. Jordan, there are a couple of sources end of last year claiming um, they'd heard that he's going to be returning in Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, as Eric Killmonger. Uh, now not th- die? Well, this is the thing. These sources couldn't confirm whether he's going to be actually revived or just appear as a guiding spirit on the astral plane thing, so he might only be it for two minutes. You know when um, when they go to the Magic Lion King tree and talk to their ancestors? <laughs> um, it could be that. Um now, there is one thing, there is precedent for this in the Marvel Universe. Do you remember, um, uh, what's his name, the uh, the agent who then went, went on to be the lead in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? What was his name? Agent... Um, Coulson? Yeah, Agent Coulson. He looked like he died in the first Avengers film, but they used the um, the alien technology to, 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 to revive him, stop him dying. Yeah. You don't actually see Michael B. Jordan die, so you could have a storyline where they've actually, he sort of passes out and... Uh, T'Challa says, no, fuck this. I'm not letting you die. That's not what I'm here for. All life is precious. 
I'm going to keep you alive. And Michael B. Jordan's character wakes up pissed off that he's alive. Do you know what I mean? Well, did they not film some of Black Panther 2 before um, Chadwick Boseman passed away? Yeah, possibly. But, I mean, they, they have the, 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 um, the dilemma of who's going to lead it now. And I think it would be awesome if Michael B. Jordan's character wakes up, finds himself alive against his wishes, and they say, look, we've lost T'Challa, we need you to fill in. Uh, and you have that kind of, you know, reluctant hero that nobody likes kind of, like, dynamic for the film. I reckon that would be really cool. And Michael B. Jordan is awesome, so that would be very good. And it would give Letitia Wright time to hit the gym and be ready to take over permanently as Black Panther later on. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not... I don't know how I feel about them making a Black Panther film in general, just with, the, you know, the passing of Chadwick Without Boseman. Without Chadwick Boseman, yeah, I mean... It's the way it goes. But the thing is, it did so well, and it's the only black superhero that yeah, Marvel have got, it's... so they're, they're, they're going to do it. So it's just a question of, of whether they do it well, you know? We'll just have to see. I mean, if they, you know, Marvel have... I mean, obviously Marvel have fucked up a few times, but they, they've tended to do quite well, and they did such a good job of the first film that, fingers crossed, they, they pull it off for the second film. It would be a terrible shame if they did a, a shit sequel. Um, so we'll just have to see what they do. Yeah, I hope not. Yeah. Uh, so, other than that, if there's no other news, mate, we can talk about the new films that are coming out. Uh, yeah, sure. And anything caught your eye? Um, new films coming out in the next couple of weeks? No, nothing really. Yeah, this, it, it's a slightly less busy roster than we've had, and I think what's happened is, is that over the course of 2021, a lot of films got kind of churned out because it's like they've been waiting that long because of COVID, and now it's kind of back to a more kind of normal number of films coming out. Um, on my list I've got there's a new British film coming out on the 25th of Feb so this podcast comes out on that date but we'll have already recorded by then um, The Duke with Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren it's based on the true story of a man who stole a priceless artwork from a British museum and demanded that in exchange for its safe return the British government start spending money on helping the people of this country rather than their rich mates and uh, benefactors yeah. um, more things change more they stay the same right but that's that's coming out um 27th of Feb, there's a new version of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It seems to be a Scottish theatre production that they've part adapted to the screen, but with still some theatre elements. Um, there's also rumours that Universal want to reboot um, Dr. Jekyll as part of that d- dark universe thing they keep trying to do. Um, oh. But that's not out yet. They're just talking about doing it. Um, 4th of March, I think the biggest film that's out oh, in the yeah, next month this. is... Yeah. 4th of March, the biggest film that's coming out uh, is The Batman with uh, Robert Pattinson. So that's going to be... That's going to be big news. I hope that'll be good. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, I think he's good. I think he's done well. Uh, you know, post uh, Twilight, and we'll have to see. Uh, you know, I think it, similar to when they got Michael Keaton to play Batman, they've picked an interesting actor to play the part. Yeah, I th- you, you might not kind of see as a massive action hero, but he's an interesting actor who might well just do a nice job of that kind of dual role that that, that comes with it. Yeah, no, it's. I feel bad for him because everyone that was in the Twilight films hated the Twilight films. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's just there was just it, I think it was just a you know a role that he played and it was really successful. I'm sure he made a lot of money from it, but he's he's managed to kind of put a stamp on his career since then. He's gone to a lot of trouble to do some very very different roles since then. He's worked with David Cronenberg and he's done some real independent stuff, and I think that probably means as he goes into this, he hasn't got his kind of Edward baggage. So I think he's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, something called Ali and Ava. I don't really know much about it, but it's an independent British film that was given a prize at Cannes last year or, or was an, an official selection, so that's done well. Uh, Red Rocket comes out on the 11th of March, which is a comedy drama about a former porn star who returns to his Texas hometown where he's no longer welcome because of what he's used to do for a career. 
Um, could be good, could be could go in one ear out the other. Uh, and then on the 18th of March, the only notable one, we mentioned this that was coming out a couple of episodes ago, but it's called Operation Fortune Ruse, Ruse de Guerre, which appears to be Guy Ritchie trying to remake Team America. It's about an actor who gets recruited by a secret elite organisation uh, who are trying to stop um, weapons of mass destruction falling into the wrong hands. So it's basically live-action Team America. I just no idea how that's going to turn out. Um, but we'll see. Honest, I, other than the King Arthur film, um, I do... I do actually quite enjoy Guy Ritchie's work. I, I thought he did a really nice job of Man from Uncle, by the way. I thought he, uh, I thought that was did very you watch, good. Did you end up watching The Gentleman? No, it's on a long list of things I've got to get around to it's, seeing. It's stupid and it's daft, but I really enjoyed it. It's uh... yeah. Um, I, I saw the trailer and I went, yeah, that, that could probably be all right. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he did a terrible job of Aladdin. He was probably on a hiding to nothing because I don't. I think those live action remakes are completely redundant. Um, and he was probably doing that to kind of earn some credibility in the industry to get a decent budget to make something like this. Um, yeah, if Disney tell you we're going to pay you twenty million to direct this Aladdin film, because that the Aladdin film is always going to make loads of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he tends to do quite well with anything that's just got that sort of slight tinge of kind of humorous parody in it. Um, so yeah, sure. Um, we'll see. So yeah, those are the films coming out between now and when we'll be releasing our next episode. So yeah, the the, the Batman is the one that, that stands out for me. That's one I'll probably um, pick out to go and see. Uh, so other than that, it turns to rather than films that we might watch, it's the films we've actually watched. Uh, have you been out to the cinema to see anything uh, lately, mate? I have not been out to the cinema since I went to see House of Gucci or Spider-Man. I think it was Spider-Man. Probably Spider-Man, yeah. I know you've had a very, very busy month. Um, yeah. I, I did go out and see a couple of things. I saw Belfast at the cinema. That's meant to be very, very good. It is. It is. It's very, very good. Um, it's. Uh, it looks and sounds really good and really polished. Uh, you couldn't really tell that it's a low budget except the fact that it's a relatively small scale story. It's really well done. Um, the opening sequence is like a musical. You know, like when you see a musical, especially when they turn that musical into a film and it's set in a town or a city, and that's anything from, I don't know, like a New York musical or or even um, the animated Beauty and the Beast. You know, everyone's like walking through the village in and out of the town and they almost like have an overture to the, to the, to the film. It's like that, but without the songs because it's this little street in Belfast and the kids run out, open the door, someone's grand comes in and says, hi, how you doing? And it's just for two minutes, you, you watch the street and it's all... Uh, exaggerated. It's how the kid remembers it. Do you know what I mean? But that's how his street was before the troubles kind of hit. And it's yeah. brilliant. I remember just thinking that's really good. And then, and then instantly there's a riot. And then Belfast, as we know it from the news headlines, starts to kind of encroach on their lives. And yeah, it's really good. Um, it's, you know, black and white looks great. Um, there are things about the way it's shot, the element of nostalgia that it, it, it's trying to kind of conjure up the Belfast that essentially Kenneth Branagh remembers when he was a kid, you know? Yeah, and that's I think they get the tone really right because you know you have the, you know the sense of community, but that that sense of community is is under attack because of what's happening, and you see right. the uh, the checkpoints kind of uh, come up on a road, and you see the soldiers turn up and how it's changing everything, uh, and nice characters, well acted, everyone's really good. Uh, probably Kieran Hines is the pick of the performances for me. He's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's really good. It's spot on. You know, a couple of couple of lump in the throat moments. It's really nicely done. I think if Power of the Dog beats Belfast to Best Picture, I would be quite upset because I don't think Power of the Dog is anything like as good as that. I know they're two different very styles of film 
And if Power of the Dog had been done right, it might have packed more punch than Belfast, because Belfast is like a, a gentle film that doesn't always do well at Oscars. Well, but I suppose it's, for the listeners, because we've just discussed the kind of the Oscar nominations, what was it about the Power of the Dog that you didn't particularly like, and why you'd be outraged if it won Best Picture? Yeah, let's let's do Power of the Dog. I've got another film from the cinema, but I watched Power of the Dog as a relatively recent film, and I was going to cover it in a roundup. So let's do that now. I tell you, I tell you, my problem with it is. While it's potentially very promising, because the cast of actors in it are very good, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Kirsten Dunst is a good actress, uh, and, and, and she is actually good in the part, Jesse Plemons is really good. They've got good actors who obviously wanted to, to, to do the roles and do their roles really well. It's got a great score by Johnny Greenwood. And while I haven't read the book, there are a couple of kind of writers who are among my favourite writers, like Annie Proulx, who love that book and say it's amazing, and it's kind of one of the influences behind Brokeback Mountain. So it's like there's obviously something there to do a film about, but I just thought the way they did it was just so poor. It was just so badly done. It centres around a very toxic character in um, in Benedict Cumberbatch who is oppressive and is clearly doing a lot of harm and damage to Kirsten Dunn's character. And everything else that happens in the story revolves around that. But it's just done so weakly, and it's almost if, it almost felt like there was 20 minutes missing. It's like where's the bit where that actually turns so bad that some that the story gets intense? If you read the synopsis of the film, it's like Benedict Cumberbatch launches this kind of psychological warfare against Kirsten Dunst and her son, uh, and you know secrets from the past are going to come out and leading to a great conclusion. Reading that, reading that summary, I'd go, "Oh, that, that could be really good. That 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 could," but it's just played really poorly. Um, for me, it suffers by comparison to something like Lady Macbeth, which is a different storyline, but it's like got a period setting, country house, kind of sterile family atmosphere where everything is going really badly wrong. And that's utterly gripping. So it's not the slow pace, it's not the storyline, it's not the idea. It's just, I don't think Jane Campion's very good. I don't think she's very good at telling a story. I don't think she's very good at actually making the film do what it's meant to do. So it just kind of sits there. That was my take on it. I don't know what you thought when you watched it, but that, that's I just thought it's a it's a, a potentially good idea that not only is it not very good, but I've seen it done much better elsewhere. I, I haven't bothered to watch it because I read the synopsis and I thought that isn't for me. And given what you've just described about it and and you know how I like films, I don't think I'd actually enjoy it very much. And if we do like an Oscar special, I think it'd be worth, you know, maybe making an effort to watch like the, the, the kind of films that have been nominated for Best Pictures and the Best Performances and things like that. If that's something you wanted to do, and I'd happily give it a watch. But yeah. if you've said it's that shit, or not that shit, it's just that kind of in it. like It's got some good things. Johnny Greenwood's music is terrific, and there is some nice cinematography in it. Um, because, you know, I, I think it would be very hard for a cameraman who knows how to focus their lens to not get, give you some nice shots of Montana, right? Yeah. That's why people, one of the reasons people like a Western is you can always give a fantastic backdrop to whatever's happening. But the story is just, put it this way, if they'd done it right, you might watch it and go, well, I appreciate how well done it is, but that particular story doesn't appeal to me. But what 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 was disappointing for me was, done right, that story would totally appeal to me. And and it right. wasn't done right. It was, I honestly, I don't know what people see in it. So really, it's, is it not even a western then? There's that. It's not. It is sort of a western. It's um, it's, it's one of those westerns where the setting is a western. Yeah, it's in Montana and it's set on a cattle ranch. Yeah, and right. the, the characters, a number of the characters, are actual cowboys. Um, and then they use that as the storyline. It's, it's kind of more of a family drama, that kind of takes place in a western setting, like late western, like 1925. It's just really disappointingly done. There's a bit where, right, I don't want to give away the plot, but there's obviously the, the storyline is clear. There's a bit where some 
unpleasantness or you know some sort of psychological problems are occurring between Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, right? And the next thing you see is Kirsten Dunst in an absolute state because of it. And I just think you, there must be half an hour missing from this movie because while I get what that story is trying to say, it's not there. It's not there on the screen. Right. And how odd. It's it's even more odd that they've actually nominated Power of the Dog for its editing. And I think its editing is fucking terrible because all the good bits in the story seem to have been cut out. I just don't get it at all. Weird. A much better film that I did that I saw at the cinema though was uh, Nightmare Alley, the new Guillermo del Toro. See, I cannot stand his films. I thought The Shape of Water was fucking horrendous. And I think this won't convert you because it's oh, a very, very oh, Guillermo oh. del Toro film. But his films um, are just shit. It's just they're just shit. If you don't like what he does, this won't this won't do any more for you. I I th- I though thought it, I mean I do like his films and I thought this was absolutely tremendous. It's um it's a remake of, well, it's not a remake so much as in 1947 someone did an adaptation of a book called Nightmare Alley that was a big film noir, and uh, Guillermo del Toro thought the time was right for him to do his own adaptation of it. So it's cut, you know, arguable. It is sort of a remake, but it's absolutely brilliant. It's um, Bradley Cooper plays this really immoral character. He's basically a, a bad person, but there's something quite charming and quite complex about him. There's moments of humanity. You see flashbacks to his past. And he's this mystery man. At the start of the film, you see him moving a corpse wrapped in blankets into a hole in the middle of his house. Then he burns the house down and gets on a bus and just stays on the bus till it gets off. Where he lands is a carnival. And in that carnival, he sort of learns to manipulate and and see what he can get out of the people who work this carnival. And he learns how to do like a mentalist act so he can pretend to be clairvoyant and say what you've got in your back is, is a pearl-handled pistol. Do you know what I mean? He does these cold reads of people. The sort of thing Darren Brown kind of does exposés of, right? Right. Uh, and uh, he's good at it, and he and he, deve- he develops into this sort of really successful entertainer, but he can't escape his past. He can't escape what essentially bad person it is, he is, and he gets into this kind of messy scheme with uh, Kate Blanchett, and it all turns very, very, very dark. And okay. I, I loved it. Um, I thought, because I love a film noir, this is like... Do you remember we watched The Big Sleep and and you were like, that's good, but it's, you know, it felt a little bit like distance. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so quite old fashioned. Yeah. Um, this has got all the things that the film noirs of the 40s couldn't actually put in the film but wanted to. There's all sorts of dark and twisted stuff that The Big Sleep is hinting at but couldn't put on screen because of the censors. What Nightmare Alley does is it puts all the stuff in that you couldn't put in back then. Right. And it's really kind of dark and powerful. It's an absolute, I thought it was brilliant. If you like a film noir, it's absolutely brilliant for that. It's this proper feel-bad movie that, that harkens back to that classic film noir era of the 40s and 50s. And it, it and I think it's justified in doing it because it puts in all the bits of the story that you couldn't put in back then because of the censorship. And it really gives you what's going on inside the dark hearts of these characters. I thought it was really, really good. Okay. Uh, and for the, I, listened, I was listening to an interview with Del Toro about the film noir classic movies from the original kind of early era that he was inspired by for this film. And I thought they're worth a mention. So for people who like Nightmare Alley, watch that and want to see the film noir that he he was inspired by. Here's a few that he mentioned that I think would be worth looking at. Fury, The Uninvited, Fallen Angel, Too Late for Tears, Born to Kill, and The Lineup. So it's like, that's where, you know, Del Toro got his inspiration. I thought it was a cracking film, but as I say, if you don't like Del Toro, you won't like this, right? Um, but if you like film noir, you will love this. Cool. So, so maybe, that's, maybe that's, that's the thing I was going to say. Maybe for the next episode, because it will be Oscars, 
month we can maybe make that either the big conversation or even just an entire bumper episode we can yeah i was thinking i was thinking that yeah i was thinking that let's do let's do an oscars episode for for next month and we can dissect you know by then they'll have you know we'll have the wins and everything i think when do the oscars actually come out Uh, or it might actually be we might have to do it in april you know um um man looks up on things up on the internet um it's the 27th of March they hold the awards. So for a proper analysis of it, you probably want to do it in April after the, the awards have actually been won. Yeah. And we can see how it all pans out. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was, think, I was thinking that. I think that would be a worthy thing to do um, because, you know, you will actually see what, what's happened. be interesting to compare it to last year when it was almost like the, the awards were given out independent of how those films did with an audience. Do you know what I mean? Because of COVID. And now it's more like a real year. Those films were shown in cinemas and the audience reacted to them and that kind of does something to the films a little bit in my opinion so yeah let's look at that so yeah that's um that's what i watched this month did you watch any like any relatively new films on like streaming or anything like that that, that were um i watched the king's man yeah what do you think um well what i did was i watched kingsman all the all the kingsman films in preparation for watching this film and what what did you think of them actually those films what did you think of them and like the controversy really about them, them. I really enjoy them. Um, they're obviously they've got like offensive moments in them, but I think that's just the style of Matthew Vaughan. Yeah. Um, but I thought Kingsman One's probably the best one. Kingsman Two Two's still a good, mm-hmm. a good watch. But King, this Kingsman film, I, I enjoyed it and I liked what it was trying to do, but it felt so disassociated from the actual Kingsman films. Yeah, you know that are set in modern day, I suppose. Yeah, and that's weird because it is obviously the same universe. But I thought it was it was good. It was quite shocking in in moments. It was quite. It had it had a lot more real moments because I feel like in the yeah. Kingsman films they're very far fetched. But it's got some things. stuff set in World War One this time, right? It's pretty much all set in World War One, apart from the yeah. opening scene. Yeah. Um, See, I find those sort of settings interesting. I, I was put off a little bit by by some aspects of Kingsman, and I, I, I was in no rush to see this new version, even though I like Ray Fiennes and all of that, right? And I will probably get around to watching it, because I find that era quite interesting. Do you remember The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which wasn't a very good film, although I have a little bit of a soft spot for it. I do like that kind of, especially just pre-World War One era. Do you know what I mean? Exciting things happening before war breaks out. But, yeah. you know, someone putting, like, modern special effects and kind of effort into a, a period story set at that time. I do quite like that. I, I do quite like when they do that in an era. So I'm I'm tempted by it, but I was just put off a little bit. I found the tone of the, the Kingsman, previous Kingsman films just a bit off. Um, but I am tempted to, to go and see it. Well, we'll stream it or whatever. It's on Disney Plus, so... Um, yeah, I, I, I might. Yeah, I might be tempted to look at that. I watched um, that tick tick boom. All right, we're basically we're basically in your resolution now, aren't we? Saying yeah, we're going to try and start watching more. Well, films I didn't. Now, oh, so no. correction. I didn't watch tick tick boom. I yeah. tried to watch tick tick boom, and I could not be fucked with it. Didn't yeah. like the style of it at all. Are, um, are, are you are you a big musicals person in general? It depends on the musical. Yeah, Hamilton was very good. I really yeah. enjoyed Hamilton. Diana the musical was not. Yeah. Um. So there was just something about the tick tick boom. I didn't like the style. It's like a style of like it's trying to be a film. But out of nowhere, they burst into song, and I, I, I can't be fucked with that. Yeah, Whereas, I mean, I, I, it, I, I'm similar to you, right? Sometimes a musical where people burst into song just totally works for me, like Singing in the Rain, uh, and Man of La Mancha, and, and Hamilton. Although Hamilton is like all musical, do you know what I mean? It's like everything about yeah. it is musical. So having, 
I, I do find it a bit jarring when people have like two and two and a half minutes of dialogue like it's a normal film and then they suddenly start singing and you just think, does no one find this What's weird? What's happened here, yeah. Does no one think this is strange? Um, so sometimes I like a musical, sometimes I don't. I can't entirely put my finger on why I like some musicals and not others. But this one just didn't work for you, no? No, I, d- I like Andrew Garfield and I... I think the problem I have with this is that I went to the Edinburgh Fringe and I watched a really shit production of Rent and I left during one of three in- intervals. There was three intervals because this thing was that long. Mm-hmm. And I thought, fuck this, and just walked out. And I think I've just been... I have no interest in the story of Rent. I know that might sound a bit... Well, do you, do you think it's the fact that... The thing about a film is you've got to kind of like the style that the film is done in, in terms of dialogue, cinematography, that director's and writer's kind of concerns and what they make and how they make. And when you add music to that as well, music is such a personal thing, right? That if you don't like the music or the songs or the way in which the music kind of tells the story, then you've just got no chance of liking the film. So maybe you just don't like that particular guy in the musicals he writes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I... I don't know, I, I I watched about 10 minutes of it and I thought, no, this is definitely not for me. Um, yeah, I look, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the same with musicals. Sometimes I will sit down and go, yeah, I'm actually into this. And then other times I'm like, I, 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 I don't want to watch another minute of this. I suppose that's testament to how good things like Hamilton were and are because they were just... They, yeah. You could just engage with them right away. Whereas if a musical is that bad in the first five minutes that you can't engage with it. I, th- I think it's a genre thing. I mean, there are people who just don't like horror movies, right? And however good a horror movie is, it will take something exceptional for them to watch and enjoy it. Same yeah. with like westerns, action, you know, and anything. Do you know what I mean? War films. I was talking to my wife the other day, and we we're going to talk about watching a war film. And she goes, "Well, you always know what happens. You know that the Germans lose at the end. So why, am I, why do I bother?" And the thing <laughs> is, if you're, if you're not into it, you're not into it, right? That's true. That's a very good point. Um, but it's not like we we detest musicals, you know, because we've watched and enjoyed some before. But just they have to be good, and I just yeah. Can't. If they if they don't work for you, they don't work for you, right? It's I can't even describe what I didn't like about it. I just didn't like the tone of the first five minutes. I thought no, mm. there's something about it where I I cannot connect with this. So look, um, I, you know, I haven't seen it. I can't comment. All I would say about this guy was that this is the musical he did when his career wasn't working, and then he did Rent, and everything worked for him. And tragically, yeah. he died before he could make any more. But it's almost like if if it's like if you listen to a band before they were good, you're not going to like what they did before they were good. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, I, I look. I, I'd have to watch it, and make my own mind up. I remember. Well, that, I remember here. I remember. For Oscars, sorry. Yes, it has. You know. You know. The Oscars love a musical. Sounds like I'm going to have to watch it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that. So I mean, does that cover your resolution to kind of try and get back into watching films after you've I had think, a very busy you know time? What? I mean, you've done well there. Yeah, given the fact that I've been... I mean, I didn't finish a lot of those films, or, or all of those films, but given that I've tried to, you know, redecorate a house, and I've not done a lot of redecorating recently, but trying to juggle that with, like, working and just... Yeah. Stuff like that. I think I've, I've done not too bad. It, it feels like you're getting back in the swing of things, mate, so I think you've done well. Look at me. Look at me go. What a yeah. day. <laughs> so, my resolution, uh, as we mentioned last month, uh, we're going to make this year um, a 2022 a Kubrick Odyssey where I'm going to watch all of Kubrick's films in order a month at a time. We did a slightly special one last year where I did his two debut films in one go because they're small and, and short and kind of just him you know, getting on his feet. This, uh, this month for February, the Kubrick entry is The Killing, uh, which he did in 1956. He was just 28 when he made this film, so he's actually a bit of a whiz kid in his early years, uh, Kubrick. Um, you know, thinking that you know, Ridley Scott didn't, uh, didn't direct his first film until he was 40. Um, 
you know, it's just different things for different people, how you break in. Um, this is him really getting in the big leagues. This is him really demonstrating what he can do with a film. Um, this is still a relatively low-budget film, but it's more than double what he had for his first two films combined. Uh, he's got some name actors. He's got a big-name co-writer, uh, the crime novelist Jim Thompson. Uh, and what this is, this is still in the era of film noir, and heist movies have become quite popular then with like The Asphalt Jungle, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and Rififi in the French film 1955, really hit a peak. Uh, and along comes Kubrick in 1956 with a big statement of his own on heist movies. It's got Sterling Hayden as the main actor. He wasn't huge, but he's a reasonably big name. And uh, so he had some. He has some film noir conventions and some heist film conventions to stick to. So this isn't him completely blowing apart film and becoming Kubrick. But it is, you can start to see Kubrick getting in. While he's got the hard-boiled crime dialogue that Jim Thompson co-wrote with him, it's, there's a lot of classic stuff about these, you know, des- a lot of desperate characters down in their luck, a lot of venal characters getting caught up in crime. There's a corrupt cop, do you know what I mean? There's a you know bribery from politicians and stuff like that. Um, but what it is, it's a, it's almost like Kubrick is watching over this. He's kind of, he gives you a narrator and he watches with like that an all-seeing eye everything that's going on and just shows you that the, the plot unfolding uh, brilliantly. It's a heist where they aiming to steal $2 million, which is quite a lot of money back then, from a racetrack on the busiest day of the year. And the main character is basically keeping all the plates spinning and is in control. And he's the only one who knows the whole of the plot. He's trying to control everything else. And he's got one one guy doing this and one guy doing that, um, which is very Kubrick. It's, a, you know, it's, it's about someone who's trying to control a situation that then gets out of control, right? That's so many of his films are like that. Uh, which is ironic because he was clearly someone who wanted to be in control and a lot of his films were about situations that kind of get completely out of hand. Um, it's brilliantly done. Um, this is, you know, what, what I mentioned before is he, he was really clearly knew how to compose a shot in his first two films because he started out as a photographer and made a name for himself. But the moving picture is a different thing. This is him totally getting it. He's got a kind of documentary feel for the way he shoots the streets. Then he switches to an expressive noir atmosphere for the, the gang and their dingy apartments. This is the first film that I've seen that like plays around with the narrative structure for the heist. Uh, they, they actually Tarantino uses this in Jackie Brown, where he shows you something happening and then they rewind like two hours and show you what happened just before that and how you know what else was going on at the same time. So he's got all these different parallel timelines brilliantly like tied together. Um, big influence on Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown, as I said. I love Tarantino to be honest, because I recognise that from a, a bit of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's his shtick. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and you know, it's like uh, all film directors are inspired by other films, and Tarantino has the distinction of being inspired by some really fucking good stuff, including this. Um, when when you listen to Real Two, you'll hear how Tarantino was inspired some by some great stuff that Walter Hill did. This is unsurprising that someone who makes films about criminals would be influenced by this movie because it's absolutely spot on. There's a really interesting scene in the film as well, which is worth mentioning, is that part of the heist involves a sniper firing a shot uh, at one of the racehorses to cause the distraction so that they can commit the robbery. Uh, and so Sterling Hayden's character has hired a, a sniper to do that, and he's got to sneak into the car park. And he does that. He manages to get into a car park that's full by pretending to have a war wound and building a rapport with the car park manager, who's a war veteran with a bad leg. So it's kind of quite clever that he builds a rapport with him to do that. What's interesting about it is that that car park manager is black, um, played by a, an African-American actor at the time called James Edwards who kind of, you know how, oh, you're a veteran as well. You've got the same injury as me. We have a rapport. So he starts trying to talk to him. 
he starts coming up to him and kind of, you know, chatting to him. And the sniper's like, I've got to take my rifle out in a minute. I wish this guy would fuck off. Do you know what I mean? Huh. And um, either because he's trying to get rid of him or because he's actually a racist, he turns around and calls him the N-word and tells him to leave him alone. And it's just a really interesting scene about that because clearly still, um, Stanley Kubrick is portraying this character as a racist and this guy is quite upset by that, understandably. So, oh, wow, it's just quite interesting to see that portrayed in a film in the 50s. And also shows how Kubrick isn't sugarcoating any of these characters. Do you know what I mean? No, that 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 occurrence has like a knock-on effect to the rest of the heist as well, which I don't want to spoil the plot of. But uh, it just shows how Kubrick is being really... Uh, you know, it shows how dark some of these characters are. It's not putting too fine a point on it. So it's quite uncompromising. The high, as I said, the heist plan involves killing a racehorse, which is quite quite shocking. Um, the, the the degree of violence in the film is right on the limit of what was permitted at the time. And what he can't do with bloody effects or language, he makes up with how well he shoots the scene. Uh, if you remember, I talked about his first film, Fear and Desire, which has a scene where like some soldiers, uh, you know, go in and have some hand to hand combat. And you can't show any blood or anything about them, but the way he shoots it gives you a lot of impact. So it's Kubrick really kind of hitting his stride here. Yeah. So, um, like I said, this is one of the first films that delves into Kubrick's preoccupations with control. Um, you know, and then you, when you see stuff he does like The Shining and 2001, that's, you know, you can see what Kubrick does in his later films are bigger and bigger and more elaborate versions of, of, of what he's doing here. Um, so it's really interesting for that. But it's just a cracking heist, uh, heist movie in its own right. Um, it wasn't a big box office success, but it was a massive critical success. You know, reviewers at the time were putting it in their top 10 of the year. It was very, you know, very well received by the people who watched it. And uh, it got him the attention of Kirk Douglas, who was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, and hired Kubrick for his next film, Paths of Glory, and the film after that, Spartacus. So his, his next two films are with the biggest star in America at the time as a result of doing well here. So um, yeah. this kind of propels him into the A-list. Um as always, I always like to give the audience an impromptu top 10 at this point linked to the film that I've just been discussing. So because the killing is such a milestone in the subgenre of heist films, I'm giving you my top 10 favourite heist films apart from the killing. Uh, so in no particular order, that is Refi-Fi, Dog Day Afternoon, Heat, Widows, Inside Man, Inception, Reservoir Dogs, The Town, The Usual Suspects and Thief. Michael Mann has the distinction of having two films on that list. Um, there are some interesting films I left out because I don't think they're heist films per se. While they've got heists, they're really about something else, like Hello High Water, Point Break, Dillinger, Out of Sight, and Jackie Brown. Um, and there were a couple of straight-up heist films that didn't quite make the list. They, although I really liked them, they just missed out. The Asphalt Jungle, which kind of in, invented the whole uh, subgenre, and Logan Lucky, which I think is uh, Soderbergh's best heist film, um, better than the Ocean's films by far. Is that the one where Daniel Craig becomes an albino? Yeah, yeah. And Adam Driver's in it as well. I really like that film. It's Daniel Craig. He's got this little side project from Bond where he practices his uh, various Deep South uh, American accents. <laughs> and this is one of them. Um, so, yeah, I really like that. So that's my impromptu top 10 for uh, for this episode linked to our Kubrick country. Uh, next month, I'll be doing Kubrick's classic anti-war film, Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas. So that's the that's the Kubrick Odyssey for this month, and that's our roundup. Unless you've got anything else to add, James? No, I think that's me. Very good. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. 
Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from 50 suspense through the Le Diabolique to underrated ghost story, Stir of Echoes. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and there are a steady stream of audience recommendations to add as well. You can go to letterbox.com slash doublereel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month we're looking at a film that seemed at the time to be ushering in a new era of violence and darkness in cinema and remains controversial to this day. The classics and recommended feature for episode 22 is Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. So what was your uh, sort of knowledge of Straw Dogs before we decided to do this uh, for this episode, mate? Uh, I recognised the poster. <laughs> um, yeah, other than that, nothing had to do a bit of background reading. Yeah, I mean, so this this film was before I was born, but as I was, uh, you know, I was a home video kid, you know, in movies, and this would be one of the films that would be talked about. Oh, have you seen this? I'm going to rent this. You know, who's got who's got parents who are liberal enough to let them watch? You know, this list of films, and this was one of the list of almost like extreme films. Um, and you know, as someone who's interested in films, it was it was part of an era of seventies like violent cinema that got talked about quite a lot um and i remember you know when we did um i think it was when we did french connection mate and and that came out in 1971 and, and you you happened to notice that that was the the year that a number of quite sort of extreme films came out or at least extreme for the time uh you noticed dirty harry you noticed polanski's macbeth but you know you you you, you put your finger on something there mate because 1971 was a real watershed year i mean the censorship in Hollywood movies kind of came to an end in the late 60s and you first started to see real, sort of real violence and blood in films with things like Bonnie and Clyde and Peckinpah's earlier film The Wild Bunch, right? But then in 1971 you got this list of films that come out that caused a bit of a moral panic. You got Straw Dogs, Clockwork Orange, Macbeth's, uh, Polanski's Macbeth that we talked about, Get Carter, Dirty Harry, French Connection, The Devils, which as well as sort of violence had lots of sex and blasphemy. And, and Warner's, the, the film behind it, still won't release the uncut version nearly 50 years, well, more than 50 years later. Uh, Wake in Fright was another one that came out that year. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which was all of those things, but with black people, so it was even more shocking uh, to, you know, film audiences back then. And uh, there's an Italian film by Pasolini called The Cameron. And, it you know, you would have newspaper headlines about, you know, this is the end of civilization as we know it because of these films. And Straw Dogs was right at the forefront of that. Um, look from your from your point of view, watching it like after all of that's happened, and after fifty years of films have since been made, where the floodgates have kind of already been opened, and now people just make the films they want to make. What did the violence and tone and style of this film seem like to you? Yeah, it's quite it's quite out there, isn't it? It's even for nineteen seventy one. That's a I think it's it's probably one of the most controversial depictions of like sexual assault and rape. I think I've ever seen in a film, and that's saying a lot from. You know, 1971, and given that films nowadays, or certainly from like 1990, haven't really given a fuck about you know hiding anything. Mm. Whereas that back then was, yeah, yeah I mean, that was, that's kind of a tough watch. Yeah, I mean, Pe- Peckinpah was, you know, it, it was so established by then, right? That within a year or so of this film coming out, there were even sketches on Monty Python kind of parodying the level of kind of violence in in um, uh, in, in Peckinpah films. Um, it's. I mean, I have a theory that for years, right, that there had been filmmakers who were so constrained in what they could reasonably show in a film that when the censorship 
uh, ended, there was this period where people were just going, well, now I'm, re- I'm going to really fucking go for it because I've been held back for so long. So this is kind of weird, weird period. But do you know what I find interesting about this this film? The, the thing that makes it almost a tougher watch, it's almost like the tone and the atmosphere of the film. It's so kind of malignant, right? The whole tone of the film that that kind of, is, you really get the impression of violence in the air. I mean, the rape and sexual assault scene is still talked about to this day. But in, in the hour or so leading up to that, you've just got this really dark atmosphere in a movie, don't you think? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a miserable film. It's not, uh, I'm not going to lie, I didn't really get on with it because of that. I didn't really see the like the point in a film that was showing that much. I understand why Sam Peckham was not because he doesn't really give a shit about you know, what he shows and what he doesn't show. But for me, it was just, it was, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot to watch and I didn't feel like it was all necessary. I think, um, I think, I mean, you're not alone in that. I mean, there's 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 a couple of things to this. If you leave aside the, the rape, the two rape scenes to begin with, because I think that, that casts a certain tone to the whole rest of the film. Yeah. I think when you look about the rest of the film, there was a, Peckinpah was quite, I mean, he was, he was quite a um, kind of haunted, kind of troubled person. And he's one of those interesting characters who, which some people don't see as a paradox; they see as a you know a contradiction or a hypocrisy. For someone who is so anti-violence and someone who's got so much to say about the negative effects of violence, he doesn't have to show a lot of violence in his films. Do you know what I mean? And I think that can be hard for a lot of people to get on with. And I think this is one of the films which I don't think it's a case of not aging well. I think the rape scenes haven't aged well. But they were they were shocking then as well, so I don't think it's even a case of that. It's that this film is really very much of its time. The, the, you know, violence was like a, a matter of huge debate back then, and I think what Peckinpah was saying was that people haven't faced up to how much violence there is in the world, and it's about time they did. Do you know what I mean? And that's probably a fair point, but it makes a film like this a little bit difficult to watch all these years later. It's like, okay, now that we've kind of accepted that there's a lot of violence in the world and we've kind of, now people are more open about how much violence there is in kind of civil wars and, and, and in society and everything else, you know, now that we no longer need reminding, how much do you want to watch a film like this? You know? Yeah. I don't know. I know, I know if you, if you kind of isolate those two scenes that the rest of the film has more of a point to but I, th- I think we'd be talking about the film slightly differently w- without yeah. that because I think I think what's really interesting is that in this story Dustin Hoffman plays a it's like a maths professor with a young wife and it doesn't quite go into you know how they came to meet did he meet her in America what was she doing in America did he meet her here what was he doing over here or whatever but obviously there's like a difference between the two main characters and Dustin Hoffman's character has come to Britain because he's essentially had enough of the violent, political, volatile atmosphere in America, you know, in the world and in university campuses. It's almost like him saying, you know, and you can sympathise with this to an extent, right? What I don't want to live in like some Ameri- you know, world in America where there's a mass shooting every day. I want to come and live somewhere quiet in Britain. You can understand someone wanting to do that, right? But what Sam Peckinpah portrays him as is someone who's running away from violence that he could... And he can't really escape that violence. He's saying that violence exists and, 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 and decent society has to stand up to that or you're going to get overtaken by it. And what he does is he creates this atmosphere in this quiet little village in Cornwall that's supposed to be somewhere you might want to go on holiday. 
And it turns out that there is violence in the air in this village because you've got these kind of rough characters. You've got the town drunk who everyone seems to be frightened of. You've got these really kind of, you know, a couple of people with criminal records and a couple of people who are, you know, you can see how violent they are. You can see there's something up with them. And they're this little village. They don't have a local policeman. They've got a magistrate who's like a sort of a posh older man who who thinks you can sort these things out with a quiet word and you can't. And violence is at your door as a result. And he's kind of commenting on the violent people he's commenting on the society that's letting this kind of run right, how a few people can ruin it for everyone else. And he's commenting on Dustin Hoffman, you know, running away from that. And he's commenting on the wife because she's kind of, she's, she doesn't like these characters and think, thinks something should be done about them. But she grew up in this village and knows these people and is friendly with them. So she's kind of like, um, partly complicit as well, because you can't, you can't be, you can't be, as negative as she is about what they're like and also be friends with them and know their dads. Do you know what I mean? And, and all of that I think is brilliantly done. That darkness is kind of, while it's a tough watch, I'm not sure I'd watch the film again. I think all of that is played out really well because Dustin Hoffman keeps hiding and keeps hiding. And eventually it's not about, cause I don't, I don't think it kind of is saying, Oh, and that's why you should have a gun in your house and shoot anyone who tries to get in there. I think Beckenbauer is, is, is lambasting the whole situation. He's, he's, he's just saying it's, it's the whole thing is wrong. We need to, you know, do something about violence and stand up to it, but it's not celebrating, you know, Dustin Hoffman when he eventually sort of starts to fight back. But it is about the longer you hide from people like that, the more kind of damage that will be done to you and everyone around you. And eventually you will, you know, you'll be dragged down with them. And I thought that was brilliantly done, even though it's a hard film to stomach. It's quite, it is quite grim. But I think what comes down to is, it's a tough watch because it's happening in ordinary homes. It's not happening in a war. It's not happening between gangsters and spies. Do you know what I mean? It's happening in your house. And that really feels like a violation. And that is tough. But I think what it comes down to is it comes down to the those two rapes seem to change the whole view of the film. After that, you've got a t- totally different view about not just the film, but the people making it, haven't you? Yeah. I, I totally get that. I get that, that vibe from it. And it it's... I suppose if I hadn't been so kind of not put off, but kind of just why have you done that with those two scenes? I think I would have appreciated it more like you have. Well, that's that the thing. Sense. I mean, I'm to be honest, I came away with the same feeling as you because of those two scenes. I just thought it's really interesting that if you were to take those two scenes out and film them differently, how much of a different film that how would much be. of a different film it would be. And I, I think it's. I think, right, that Sam Peckinpah was trying to make a similarly dark comment about sexual violence and how it's in the air and how it's almost inescapable. But because he was a man of his age and his era, he falls into you know, traps about consent and uh, and you know what what women are like. That we just those attitudes are not acceptable now. It's like it's not acceptable to be to say that because she you know, because her boobs are visible through her top, that she somehow provoked it. And it's not acceptable to portray a woman as almost partly enjoying aspects of the initial attack, although she doesn't enjoy things as they escalate. And mm-hmm. I just think that... You, it, I totally understand anyone being put off by this film. And I think if the, if the, if he portrayed those two scenes differently... We'll come to the remake, right? Because one thing the remake does is at least it doesn't do that with the rape scene. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the film would be portrayed as very different. But I, I, I get the feeling that if, if you went up to Sam Peckinpah and said, this film made me sick, I hated it, I thought the violence in that was awful, and I just found the whole tone of the film 
really, really hard to take. I think Peckinpah would go, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he would necessarily mind that people came out of this film kind of being really pissed off and and, and outraged and, and upset by what he showed them. But I do think that the, 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 the two rape scenes you've got in the, the film, I, I think that crosses a line. And that's that's what kind of takes it from a film that's hard to watch, but you can understand it, to I just think that it was a... It was an error of judgment by everyone involved, if I'm honest. I don't blame Susan George because she's. I, there are interviews with Susan George where she actually pushed back a lot and wanted to make sure that her character retained some dignity in this film. So I don't blame her. She's only 21 when she shot this film, by the way. So she's a real substantial person to kind of stick up for herself the way she did. But I just think the men who made this film just didn't. They they, they had their you know their their priorities all wrong when they shot those scenes. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it, we should be saying, you know, that we shouldn't show those kind of things on camera because there are stories that need to be told where men have been pigs and have been pieces of shit. Um, but, you, I mean, the the I mean, the mean film The Accused with Jodie Foster, that was pretty blunt and open about the rape scene and yeah. what it was like. And I think The Last Duel, while that was also controversial, I think The Last Duel's intentions were very clearly to portray in no uncertain terms what it's like for Jodie Comer in, in those scenes. Uh, so I think it's not about how explicit the scenes are or how brutal the scenes are. It's about certain aspects of the tone of the film because it's still debated to this day um, that, you know, uh, there are times where she seems to be enjoying the first rape and that's kind of, whoa, it just... It, What's it, going on there? You just yeah. kind of pause the video and go, what the fuck is happening? This is just too much, you know? You know, and, yeah. and, and Peckinpah in an interview said, look, I'm not trying to say anything about all women. I'm saying something about an individual character, but all the same, it's just, it changes the whole dynamic of the film. And yeah, it's, and it's one, of the reasons, it's one, of the, one of the reasons the film remains really problematic. I mean, what, what did you think of the violence apart from that? Because I think violence in film, there's probably more violent films than that have been made since this film. What did you think of the rest of the violence in the film other than that? Yeah, I think... I think we've kind of been kind of desensitized to violence a little bit with just the way that films are nowadays and even things like video games and mm-hmm. just the, anything that you can look through your phone that you can play, watch, mm-hmm. or even read about to some yeah. extent is is pretty brutal. Um, I think it's when, it, just when it comes to sexual violence, it there's something just really sinister about it for me. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the rest of the you know obviously the there are violent moments in the build up to to the film, although there is a long build up before the violence really breaks out, and the actual siege is like the last kind of thirty five minutes of the film, and then there is a sustained period of violence. I think most of that shows how brilliant Sam Peckinpah was at making you know violent films, because I think he, it's not just you know it. I think it's a lot easier now because you can just you can even add in CGI at the end and show more blood spurting and everything else. What he does in this is that he shows people being shot, people being hurt, people being attacked, people being injured in various ways, and people you know using weapons, you know, pulling something off the wall and using it as a weapon in a way that really kind of hammers home how. What am I trying to say? I, I think he's. I think he at least shows what the consequences of that violence in a realistic way. And and I think you know that shows how good he is at it. And and I think the 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 violence in the air, the idea that no one can do anything about like a handful of really quite dark violent people in in a in a small village, and it kind of changes the whole tone. It changes from a, from an idyllic rural village into like into a living hell. I thought that's brilliantly done. 
So there's aspects of this that are, you know just show how, how talented Peckinpah was. There are aspects of this film that also show he was a quite a troubled individual. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, it was. I think. I think it's a film that is worth watching, but it should come with a very strong disclaimer, I suppose. I, yeah, I don't think this is a film you just put on to go, oh, I'm going to watch Straw Dogs. And Yeah, if you fancy watching Straw Dogs. I think it's a case of I'm going to watch this film and I'm going to think about it. I mean, I read quite a lot of interviews and watched some documentaries about this. And, you know, Mark Kermode always gets a mention on here. His wife is, is, a, is a film writer. I think she writes about other things as well. And she does an analysis of this film. I think it's a film you don't just watch and go, oh, I'm going to watch this, and oh, wasn't that ending really exciting? I think you watch it, and then you have to do... it. it it's, it's almost something to be kind of thought about and considered rather than just put on. And I think that that makes it different from a number of other films that were you know that, that came out that year. I think you can watch Dirty Harry just for watching it. I think you can watch French Connection for the same reason, just to watch the movie. Yeah. Um, Polanski's Macbeth, there's a lot of baggage off screen that you can't help thinking about. Um, Clock, even Clockwork Orange, I think you can watch Clockwork Orange just for itself, whereas Straw Dogs, it's almost a case of you should maybe only watch it in controlled conditions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I... Th- yeah, I think you've put it quite nicely there. So yeah, that, that's us watching Straw Dogs. We will obviously revisit aspects of this film when we talk about the remake later, but I think what we're saying is this is a very interesting film and worth watching, but I think it's a film to watch with... Um, with some thought and and consideration about some very challenging things that are contained in it. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're discussing a recent film starring our favourite wild man of the cinema. This film hasn't been seen widely enough because it hasn't yet been seen by every single living human on this planet. <laughs> the hidden gem for episode 21 is Pig, starring Nicolas Cage. So, yeah, I mean, this film actually is literally a hidden gem because it's about um, sn- sniffing out precious truffles in the dirt. So it, it, it's, it's actually the ultimate expression of a hidden gem on screen. Um we discussed this, we talked about this film coming out or that it was happening and we essentially talked about the basic premise that Nicolas Cage is, plays a hermit in the woods who finds truffles for a living, whose truffle hunting pig is stolen and he has to go back to the city and face his old life to get his pig back. And obviously we imagined all sorts of cage madness as a result of that and it was like such a weird, it's almost like a weird version of like Taken or John Wick or something, right? Does it live up to what you imagined? Um, I don't know with Nicolas Cage at this point. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, his... I feel quite bad for the guy because this is actually a really good idea for a film and he has been overlooked because he's made some really shit films. Yeah. Um. So, my, my imagination with Nicolas Cage goes as far as an imagination could probably go. Like, if you were to come to me and say, yeah, Nicolas Cage is about to play Hitler, yeah, I'd have... No, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest. This could go anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you hear Nicolas Cage is playing a guy who's going to go after a truffle hunting pig that's been stolen. Am I surprised? No. 
Um, I think the most surprising thing about Nicolas Cage is when his films are actually good and they're well received. Yeah, and yeah, and this has been well received, and I think it was good. I think what's interesting about this is that I think he and everyone else involved in the film takes the story seriously and does the story seriously, and I think does the story justice for what it is. I think the Nicolas Cage aspect of this, I think there's a lot of actors who would hear that pitch of what the film's about and not bother to read the script and say, no, I think that's a bit mad for me. I won't do that, right? right and Nicolas yeah. Cage is a person who says, no, I'll give that a go. Give me the script. I'll have a read. Do you know what I mean? Because he's who he is, he's prepared to give kind of all sorts of kind of weird ideas for a film a chance. But then when he's made the film, I, I don't think, I think he's his performance is quite restrained, actually. I don't think he's in, you know, uh, I'm a vampire, quite territory. He's taken this, he's, he's, he's crafted a character that's uh, quite, you know, quite low key in a lot of ways. Although the way he looks and the way he kind of, you know, he doesn't seem, you know, he plays a hermit in the woods and you find out why he's doing that because he, you know, his past comes back, but you've, he plays someone who struggles socially and he looks like he's about to explode half the time. But his the, the actual way he plays the character is it, it's it, I thought it was quite surprising a lot of, a lot of things in this film surprised me I thought in, in quite acting, an interesting way it? yeah it was acting from Nicolas Cage as opposed to just letting off some whatever steam he letting off fireworks yeah. yeah yeah it felt that he was you know he was trying you know I mean not not necessarily trying because I feel like Nicolas Cage tries in every film but it was like he was thinking right I've got to stop this manic shouting. Thing like that's fun now and again. Like if he does one film like that every two years, I'm sure people will watch it. I'm sure we'd watch it and enjoy it. But we also know that Nicolas Cage is a talented actor. He's an Oscar winner and can act, and he's been in some films that we can really enjoy. And if, it's just nice to see him doing these kind of films because yeah. we were sick of the what's it the National Treasure films and I was Ghost Rider and all these like the what's the what's the one with the the bees? Uh, um, the Wicker Man. Wicker Man. Yeah. You see, there's, you see, when I think I've got more of a, a tolerance for something like The Wicker Man because if he's going to do something that's really completely out there and decides to do it and go nuts on it, it's like, all right, that's quite fun. But I think when that's when that's kind of the the the, the rule rather than the exception, you start to think, what's he doing? Do you know what I mean? The problem with The Wicker Man was it just it was shit and didn't work. But when he does really mad stuff, I think I've got less patience for something like National Treasure and uh, Ghost Rider because it's almost a case of they're big blockbusters, so you're never going to get him going full cage, are you? And you just end up having like silly moments that kind of like when he tries to do that English accent in National Treasure, you just think, oh, fuck off, man. He's, I think he, when he does his action films more like Con Air, it's like, do you know what I mean? Either go full on, all out mental, like in Face Off, or do that kind of restrained, kind of stoic Nicolas Cage and save your madness for, for, your, for your, your littler films. But with this, I mean, I... I, I, I I tell you when I tell you when I realised we definitely weren't going to get Mad Nick Cage in this movie. I don't know if it was the same for you. The setup is he's he's out in the woods and you know he's finding truffles and you know he's clearly you know he's got no company apart from the pig and he's kind of takes good care of it and all of that and it's like it's like John Wick and his dog. Do you know what I mean? I get it. I get it. He's you know he's 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 this you know this animal is his companion. I, I get I get where we are. And then you see the one person that he talks to. Do you know what I mean? And he and he barely kind of barely has a word to say to um, the guy from the town who comes up in his car to buy the truffles off him, right? Um, okay, I'm with you so far. And then the pig gets stolen, and he's clearly hugely upset by that. And he's got that look on his face like he could go off at any minute. He's really he's furious, right? Huh. And they take him in. The guy takes him into the town. He kind of persuades him, "You've got to go into the town and help me find this pig." 
and after a couple of sort of places he's got to go to try and get answers, he ends up, for some reason, in an underground fighting ring for members of the restaurant industry in Portland, Oregon. And he, and he steps into the ring to have the fight. And I thought, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this is when we go all taken or John Wick. He's going to start going nuts. And instead, he he sits there and takes a, bit, a beating. And for some reason, that persuades the old restaurant owner who doesn't like him like like him and we don't know why to give him some information about his pig and, I, and at that point I went oh I don't think we're going to get that film right we're going to get something else I don't know what we're going to get I'm just going to have to see how this turns out that was the moment for me I went all oh, right this is going to be something different you know yeah and I think it I think it was I think it was something different yeah I mean apart I mean <laughs> leaving aside the premise that it's a truffle hunting pig which sounds a little bit silly what the film is about is that this is a, a character who had a whole past life, and I don't want to give away too much plot. I think you get some interesting revelations. In, there are no plot twists, right? There are just interesting revelations about the character. What, what you know about the characters at the beginning, you then find out more about at least Nicolas Cage and, and the young kid that he works with, uh, and, and various other characters comes out by the end. And it's So apart from the slightly odd premise, you've got a character who had this whole different life, and for various personal reasons he abandoned that life to live on his own and he has to go back and you find out what he used to be like and you find out a contrast between what he used to be like and what he is now and uh and as the story unfolds all sorts of stuff come come out he confronts things other people confront things and the story leads to a resolution and it, it could have led to a different resolution it led to one particular possible outcome you go okay i'm with you and i thought it was like uh I thought it was well done, and I thought the story was interesting. You know, there were you know, emotional aspects that were sensitively told, and there was various things going on. And it's kind of like, because people put the effort into the storyline, they made a, a, a bit of an oddball premise kind of work. Yeah, no, it was... It was nice to see a different film in both respects. I understand what you're saying, like it could be a bit like John Wick, and we've seen, what, three or four of those films now. I think it would have been a lot less interesting if, they, if that's what they'd done. But it's also nice to see Nicolas Cage not doing his usual shtick. It was, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's one of those films. If you like Nicolas Cage not doing his shouting... Yeah, there's, there's a number of scenes, isn't there, where you, where you watch what he's about to do and what his character does and how Nick Cage plays the character kind of confound those expectations and take it in a different direction. A good direction, I thought. So Yeah, no, totally. So, I mean, we were kind of tongue-in-cheek about, oh, my God, Nick Cage is someone who's hunting, you know, chasing his truffle-hunting pig. That was kind of half the reason like we mean, watched it, yeah. right? Yeah. And in the end, I think we, we came to kind of wonder what the fuck was going to happen and we stayed to kind of be engaged by a, quite a well-done story. It's quite independent, but I think it plays out well. I think it, I think it, I think, I think this film delivers. I think it delivers trick. on the yeah. story, yeah. So, I mean, from us, I think it's not... I mean, we've done it before, like like One Night in Miami. We sometimes pick something out as a hidden gem, even though it's only recently come out. I think a, a yeah. classic hidden gem is often stuff that's... You know, you know the the the, the first hidden gem ever on, on Double Reel was Blowout, which is 40 years old. And it's a film that I think is absolutely brilliant and, and, and just not enough people have seen. Yeah, This could easily end up with a cult following over the years that kind of builds up. But I think the reason we've picked it out is that a lot of films come out this year, last year. This didn't get much attention. I think it's really worth a look. It's really worth a look for anyone who's just, you know, it's, it's a slightly odd idea, but I think it plays out as quite a, a good human drama and it's quite a nice setting as well the forest outside Portland Oregon it's not a city you see in films very often when he what gets into that, the town 
I think it's just you know there's a lot of films set in in New York and LA, and then if you if they're, if they're going to do something rural, it's often set in I don't know the Midwest or in, in other places like that. Okay, and, and it's not it's not one of the main cities. It's um, it's in the same sort of neck of the woods as Seattle. Um, but yeah, it's just yeah. just interesting. It's just interesting to see a film. It's set somewhere different with a slightly different premise and some good characters. It's just generally worth a watch. It's an hour and a half well spent. Uh, so that's uh, that's a recommendation from us. Yeah, no, uh, totally. Now for The One That Got Away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at the long and rather strange story of how numerous filmmakers, including Tim Burton and Kevin Smith, tried to make perhaps the most out-there superhero film yet seen. The One That Got Away for episode 22 is Superman Lives. Um, now, we do, we often have, like last month, Barry Levinson's The Captain and the Shark, where it's a director and the film that that director was trying to make. This is one of those slightly different ones where it wasn't strictly speaking about one director and what they were trying to do. A number of people came at this film from different angles. Uh, less surprising, I suppose, when you're talking about a massive superhero property from DC Comics. Um, but James, I mean, I lived through this. I mean, I remember this being talked about when people were trying to make it. I remember the comic book a series coming out that this story is based on. I'm not sure how much this had made its way into the mythology of, of you know, films and 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 the rather you know shaky history of, of the DC cinematic universe, as it were, whatever they call their universe. I don't know how much this had made its way through to you before we said we were going to do it for the for the podcast. I vaguely remember that Nicholas Cage was considered to play Superman back in the 90s, and I didn't realize that these two things were basically the same story. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I remember you've told me before, oh, Nicholas Cage was once considered to be um, Superman. I thought, that's mental. That makes... Yeah, that but doesn't work. <laughs> mental were very interesting. I, and we'll get into it. I, I wonder if there's a if there's a world in which that would actually have worked. Um, but we can, we, can, we can get more into that. But to, to provide some background to this, this all started off in the 19, uh, 1990s. And... It's 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 a bit of a it's not the best time for Superman at the time the 1990s because they'd had a, a good start with the 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 Superman film in 1978 and Superman for a long time was the, the biggest superhero in the comic books, um, uh, but after you know even the the first Superman Christopher Reeve film in 1978 had some slapstick comedy which I'm not sure has aged very well and that the rest of the films in that series with Reeve got very cheesy. And it reached its absolute nadir with Superman IV, The Quest for Peace in 1987, which was had earnest intentions in the storyline, but it was absolute rubbish. It had a minuscule budget. It was presided over by Canon Films, who normally made uh, movies with Chuck Norris. Somehow they got rights to make a Superman movie, cut the budget, you know, just, just, for, um, just for comparison. The first Superman film in 1978 had a £55 million pound budget which was huge for the time they tried to make superman 4 with less than 10 million and they skimped on special effects and actors and everything it was absolute dog shit so superman kind of hit hit the buffers then in the meantime in the late 80s tim burton comes up uh, and brings batman successfully up to date in the 1989 batman film with michael keaton it's a smash hit when it comes out it's everywhere you know everyone's wearing batman t-shirts um Prior to that, the only proper live-action treatments of Batman had been the sort of smash-kapow Adam West 
version of Batman, which had a TV series and a film. And then in the late 80s, Tim Burton comes along and treats Batman a bit more seriously. So superhero films have a bit more going for them in the early 90s, and they decided to have another crack at it. The other thing that, that, that was happening in the early 90s is there was a show called... Um, it was called Lois and Clark in America, and it's called The New Adventures of Superman Here, and it had Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher as Superman and Lois Lane, and it was a TV series version of it, which was sort of lightweight but quite popular. It was okay. Um, and Batman was being freshened up in the comics with things like The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. They're really kind of leaning into the, um, uh, the, the noir aspects of Batman. Superman was having a bit of a tough time. like Sales were falling. And they brought out the storyline called The Death of Superman. Um, and, you know, his clean-cut heroism was about out of step with like modern sensibilities. He's a bit of a Boy Scout, and they thought he needed to do something different with it. And uh, in the comics, Superman dies at the hands of a combined superhero battle with uh, supervillain battle with Lex Luthor, Brainiac, and Doomsday. And he sacrifices himself and dies. And then, in sort of some uh, quite uh, sort of convoluted and complicated over the course of several issues, um, Superman is brought back. And I remember it being a huge thing. I didn't buy a lot of comics back then, but I had a friend at university who did, and he, he spoke of nothing else about the death of Superman, how it was huge, and it was a big discussion point. How can you kill off Superman? And then when you bring him back, is that is that good or bad the way they've done it? Superman looked different. He came back with longer hair and all of this stuff. So it was a big thing, and it really kick-started Superman again. So someone said, you know, maybe the time's right to reboot Superman, do for Superman what Tim Burton did for Batman, uh, and, and get stuck into it. So this I think is, it wouldn't even be a case of what Tim Burton did for Batman, but what Christopher Nolan did for Batman. I and that, that was the era. That yeah, and I mean that that's ten years after this. So at that time, the 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 horizon of what you would do with a superhero film wasn't what Nolan brought to it. It was what Tim Burton had brought to it. But ten years later, it's a whole different story. Definitely, it's a whole different it's ball game back then. Ball, yeah. So this is that mid midpoint. The, I'll tell you the difference between that and this is that when you talk about the mid two thousands. Christopher Nolan does the Batman trilogy, which the Dark Knight trilogy, which absolutely kind of blows wide open what you can do with a superhero film. Marvel then kind of really gets in on the act, you know, partway through, you know, after Dark Knight, you've got Iron Man. They really hit their stride, right? Um, and, and, and what they do is they, both, both DC and Marvel now, although DC don't do it as well as Marvel, they are able to get hundreds of million dollars of budget for films because they've, you know, audiences will go and see something with that level of spectacle, and there's a huge pre-existing kind of fan base for the films. Back then, it wasn't the same as that. Tim Burton had kicked things off and kind of moved things forward, but when the studio was first trying to do this, do you know who they were talking to before they were talking to writers and directors? Who? They were talking to the toy manufacturers. Why? Because that was how you got finance for a big film back then. Really? Yeah. So, like, Mattel or whoever, the action figures were actually a big say because they, you'd actually get a lot of the money for making that film. But now, Marvel, what? how much do you want for your next film? 300 million? Well, let's do it. If it's Avengers Endgame, you can have that much, you know? Um, back then, the studios were had to kind of work with, essentially, sponsors and product placement to make the movie. And it's a quick side point question. There's no one to spend too long on this, but I thought it's quite interesting. You remember when you were a kid and it was like uh, one of the things that we would always do is to try and take you to see a film at the weekend, uh, you know, and if, if you'd been good, you know, you'd get, um, we'd take you to like the, whichever burger joint, you know, was nearby for a, for a, for a Happy Meal. Right. And I don't know if you remember this, but often the choice of available toys would affect which place you wanted to go to. Do you know what I mean? If Burger <laughs> King, if Burger King had the toy from yeah. the film, you want to go and see the film. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, I'm following. 
Now that's interesting. It affected the choice of like place you'd want to go to for your burger and chips because you could get the toy for the film you just watched, whether it was a Pixar or, or, or whatever. Did it ever affect the choice of film you would watch? You know, the toys that were being advertised on the, on the TV uh, or anything? I've never really thought about it like that. Um, I mean, I, I didn't either because for me, you know, I, you know, I, I grew up in the era of like toys tied in with films, but it was always a case of if you like the film, here's the toy, right? But in this instance, you've really got the tail wagging the dog and that the toy manufacturers are defining to some extent what kind of film you're going to see. I just wonder if that ever affected, oh, that action figure looks interesting, I'd like to see that film. Did that ever happen for you? Um, I don't rightly remember. I don't. Batman wasn't really a thing for me until about 2008. That's yeah. the first Batman film I saw. So by that point, I'm a bit young. Yeah. For like a but, say, but, 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 say, but say the action figures for the, for the Incredibles or the latest Pixar film or the other kind of kids films that are coming out in the mid 2000s were you ever you know did you ever see the toys advertised and that made you want to watch the film um I'm not that I can rightly remember but yeah. it would make sense to me now it's interesting because I don't remember it particularly either but you know it's not you know the parent doesn't always kind of notice that but I just thought it was interesting it's like I think this, what was happening in the 90s there, is a little bit of just a sign of the studios being a bit out of step back then. Because they, it, they, it didn't occur to them straight off to tap into the fact that there are millions and millions and millions of fans of Superman and Batman who will go and watch the film if you do a good movie. Do you know what I mean? And they'll buy the action figure of Batman because they buy the action figure of the, the, the stuff they like. But your starting point is there's a big fan base for this. Let's do a movie of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so they, 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 so it meant they had a bad start. The first scriptwriter they bought in before they've got a director attached is someone who'd done a Lethal Weapon sequel and not one of the good ones, and he didn't really know anything about Superman, so he wrote this script. Uh, then what happened? This is this is the sign of how this uh, the film industry worked back then. Warner's didn't realise they'd actually let their rights to the Superman movie franchise lapse. Um, John Peters, the producer, we talked about briefly because he was involved in, in, in something else that we, a previous one that got away that we talked about. And he's, uh, he's featured as a character in Licorice Pizza. Absolute madman, but quite shrewd. He, um, he'd been involved in producing Batman, so he was like, interested in, the, uh, in, in this area. And he checked up and realized that they hadn't, um, they hadn't uh, renewed their rights. They'd allowed it to lapse because they weren't computerized back then. They didn't have all of the things that they had rights to on a computer file with a reminder that says, this billion-dollar Superman franchise expires in two years' time. You really want to renew that. And they'd let it lapse. It was in a contract in, a, in, a, in the basement, and no one had bothered to, um, to renew it. That's good. Um, so that's, that's where the... I mean, you can't imagine, you know, you know Warner's Marvel, uh, Fox, you know, any of these kind of... Sony and, and, and DC doing that now, right? Um, but that, that's, what it, that's what... It was a bit amateur back then. So John Peters swoops in. He's an absolute madman. He was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser and suddenly found himself working as a uh, movie producer. He's a, a kind of a very creative guy because he had a million ideas, but 90% of those ideas were stupid and mad and shit. Um, but he was a really wild, you know, he had, had a force of personality that would help get a film made. And he comes in and he wants to kind of do this. The other thing that happens is that Kevin Smith get, gets involved. He is like made a name for himself in the early 90s with Clarks and, he, and then he does more rats and then he's, you know, he's kind of the new coming thing. He represents the youth voice, as it were, as far as studios are concerned. And he was brought in to do something else. And he happened to mention that he'd read the Superman script. And he was a fan of the Superman comics. And that was a terrible script. And it's absolutely awful. And what the huh. studio said was, well, what would you do? 
And at that point, they started going, well, maybe what, what would we do that would actually work for the actual fan base of Superman? So they got Kevin Smith in to write a, a script. Right. And the reason this it, the reason this kind of didn't get made at the time and kind of took four years to kind of fall apart is that there was a combination of things. First of all, you've got the original storyline is quite complicated because it's not... And, and I think Christopher Nolan solved this problem in a different way by streamlining the stories. He would go to original kind of DC storylines for Batman, but he would take them, they would work within... They would be true essentially to what the story originally was, but then he'd make it work for his film. They were still wrestling with that. And, you know, a comic book story goes over a long period of time, you know, issues over months and months and months. So there's a lot of plot that Kevin Smith was wrestling with. You've got these different ways in which different characters involved in bringing Superman back. So the arc of the film is going to be Superman dies and comes back, right? And there's a lot of complicated plot that Kevin Smith's wrestling with and trying to kind of distill down into one movie. The other thing that's happening is John Peters has got all sorts of mad and fucking ridiculous ideas. Now, you can go on YouTube and watch some of Kevin Smith's kind of anecdotes about this, and they're absolutely brilliant. There's also a documentary which I, uh, which will mention in the credits and which I'll link uh, in, in the socials uh, called uh, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? But John Peters had a series of just crazy ideas. I don't want Superman to wear the suit. The suit looks stupid. And Kevin Smith's like, what? You don't want him to wear the suit? What? He, no flying. He's not allowed to just get up and fly, right? And it's like, if Superman doesn't have the suit and doesn't fly, is he still Superman? The what point? the fuck is this? Yeah. So Kevin Smith solved that particular problem. With the suit, he just didn't describe the suit. He just, in, this, in, the, in his description, he goes, it's Superman, but 90s style. He thought, someone's going to tell John Peters to fuck off and make, and, and, wear, and make a suit. So I'm not even going to have that argument. For the flying thing, what he said was, he, he basically had in the, in the stage directions a series of sonic booms. So he's almost like jumping. And he just hoped that by the time the film got to being made, someone would have twisted John Peters' arm saying, oh, we'll have flying, do you know what I mean? And that, and they could replace that in the script. Um, John Peters absolutely insisted on um, there being a fight with a giant spider. Because? Because he said the, the spider is like the ultimate killer in the animal kingdom. Good. So, oh, wow. And, and, and he also said, um, uh, someone's got to fight some polar bears. And Kevin Smith's like, what would you be fucking polar bears? He says, well, um, uh, Superman's got a fortress of solitude, right? It's out in the ice and snow. Brainiac should go to the, um, the fortress of solitude, but he should have to fight some guards, right? And, and everyone's like, the studio and Kevin Smith are like, right, number one, it's a fortress of solitude, right? He's on his own there. So why has he got guards? Number two, he's Superman. Why does he need guards, right? But John Peters was not to be denied, and Kevin Smith had to write a script in which Kevin, uh, in which Su uh, Superman's enemy turns up at the Fortress of Solitude and fights the guards. And John Peters added, "Well, how about polar bears? They're not people; they're polar bears. So he's fighting polar bears. So you've got scenes right. of the enemy kind of firing his oh, ray gun and punching bonkers. polar bears. Absolutely bonkers." Uh, the other thing that John Peters wanted to have is he wanted to cast Sean Penn as Superman because he's got quote the cold hard eyes of a killer. It's like, is that Superman? I don't know. So. Kevin Smith has got all of this fucking madness to try and distill into like 120 or 100 and whatever pages of script. So what he brings back is quite ungainly. It's not helped by the fact that Kevin Smith is a very jokey, dialogue-heavy kind of scriptwriter. So there's lots of kind of, you know, you know, geeky, jokey dialogue. And, I mean, I think you in, in modern era, you do expect there to be some kind of, you know, snappy, you know, uh, interplay between characters. But it was definitely the kind of script that needed to be really kind of pared down right um 
originally uh, Robert Rodriguez was going to be the director of this. This is when you start getting directors attached. So Robert Rodriguez was going to be the director. He'd just done Desperado and Dust Till Dawn. So he's a very action-oriented director, and he was going to come in and do it. And he, he was signed up, and he was going to make the movie. Um, but then he pulled out due to exhaustion. Exhaustion After Desperado and Dust Till Dawn came out back-to-back, he was absolutely. You know, he said he just needs to take some time off. He'd just been doing nothing but kind of make and produce and direct films for a period of time. So he took a break, and he backed out. 97 or so, Tim Burton comes in and he and, and they've essentially said, look, Tim Burton did a good job of Batman. Maybe he should come in and do this. Uh, and at the same time, Nick Cage was brought in to, to be Superman. Now, Nick Cage is a massive Superman fan, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, one of his kids is called Kal-El, which is like Clark Kent's oh, Kryptonian name. So he's massively into Superman. So I would expect that if he was brought into it, he was going to go for it, do it properly. And this is like the mid to late 90s when Nick Cage is doing Con Air and Face Off. So he's actually getting into doing action films and big blockbusters. So maybe the time he could have been right for that. Um, what's interesting is that Nick Cage signed a pay or play deal. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, James, in the, uh, in, in, in the, in the movie industry. No, I've heard of like stuff like that in like sports. But... Yeah. So pay or play deal in the films means that Nick Cage gets a fee of $20 million. And he gets paid that whether the film gets made or not. So if the film gets made, his fee is $20 million and he's probably got some you know, points or whatever on the you know, profits of the film. If the film collapses, he still gets paid $20 million. So he is, he's embedded in this film. They, they, they've committed to Nick Cage. Um, the problem with this is that the um, uh, Tim Burton, rather than taking the script that Kevin Smith did and making some changes and sorting it out, he just chucked it out. He said he didn't want anything to do with Kevin Smith. He didn't want anything to do with the script. Fuck off, do it. And Kevin Smith's still a bit bitter about this. He's, he tells a story later where he sees Tim Burton say something on Twitter about how he doesn't really read comic books and isn't really interested in, in reading comic books before he makes a film. And Kevin Smith replied to him and said, well, that explains Batman. So Kevin Smith's not a fan of Tim Burton, right? Um, uh, but at, at this point, they're like struggling with, uh, you know, trying to keep a number of, uh, of things going. But this is the thing, I'm interested to see what you think of this, mate. They had an interesting take on the character, and this actually survived into the mid-2000s when they eventually did make a new Superman film. They wanted to focus on the fact that Superman is an alien and not of this Earth. And he's almost like a kind of Christ-like figure. I mean, it's something about the way in which Superman was originally written by the, by the people who created him in the 30s and 40s. As he's this kind of character who says that he, he, he is going to put himself on the line for the human race, but he's not human, and he's different, and he sees human beings differently. And that kind of slightly alien strangeness was something they wanted to play up. And Nick Cage was really interested in playing that kind of character. I, I don't know if, if hearing that would make you, and, and knowing what Nick Cage was doing in his 90s films, whether that would make you reconsider whether it would have worked with him as Superman? Maybe. Um, it just depends, because Nicolas Cage in the 90s is a totally different actor to Nicolas Cage now. So yeah. I suppose it's just one of the things. I, I would have thought that Nicolas Cage in the 90s was probably at his best, so he would have been able to give it you know, all he had, but it sounds like no matter what Nicolas Cage did, that, that film was destined to be fucked. You know, you've, you've the, described how the, the interference from John Peters and how Kevin Smith's trying to write a good script for this and it's just not going anywhere. So it sounds like if they were to do it now, obviously Nicolas Cage wasn't going to be in it, but they, needed to, they need to have someone who's not going to be an absolute clown with stupid requests and yeah. overruling everyone's suggestion. Because the yeah. suggestions Kevin Smith was making seemed like, well, Kevin Smith's a big comic book guy, so he would have done... Um, Ke Ke yeah. job that. Kevin um, Smith's problem was he had lots and lots of chatty dialogue, not all of which was going to survive to the final film. And he still had lots of the plot from the comic books that he's adapting from in the film. 
And I think what what I think what Kevin Smith was expecting to happen was he was expecting someone to come in or to work with someone who would do a new draft of that, which streamlined everything. Do you know what I mean? I think Kevin Smith was going, well, this isn't the final word, right? We'll work on this, right? You tell me what we cut out. You know, you tell me what we should do to make it more cinematic. But in the end, all his script was just chucked out. And I think that's because of John Peters, really. I think all the shit that John Peters put in the film was just kind of kind of killed it off. Um, there, there's some photos online. You can look at them. Uh, and Nick Cage looks quite interesting because in, 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 he actually posed in the suit. There's photos of him in the suit, you know, getting measured up for the film. Uh, and it's Nicholas yeah, Cage. Yeah, I, I, I saw them before we did this pod so it's uh, and the, the, the it's cage interesting with, look <laughs> the cage with long hair that's not cage that's not his idea that's how superman looks in the comics they're adapting they bring back superman with longer hair so they're going through a bit of an identity crisis with the character they're trying to reinvent superman a little bit and i think that it, there, there were so many moving parts they were trying to change and reinvent that I, th- I think it was just impossible for them to settle on a film by the time by the late 90s right they've had all this input and, and lots of delays the budget was already getting massive. You're talking about like a massive, like maybe 150 to 200 million dollar budget back then, which is really high for then. Um, and other sci-fi ventures Warner's had done in, in preceding years had failed. There'd been Sphere and The Postman, which were both kind of big financial failures. The TV series Lois and Clark had been cancelled due to falling ratings, and the latest Batman film, Batman and Robin, had just come out. The shit one with George Clooney. Yeah. And although that did okay at the box office, it was a bit of a letdown financially and a massive critical letdown. And and, and what Warner said was, oh, this isn't the right time. So they pulled the plug and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And it's really interesting is that they didn't have the ready-made funding and, uh, and they hadn't tapped into the fan base the way they do now. Whatever else you think of the way the DC universe is kind of, I think, being quite poorly done on screen, right? Um, at least now they can say, we know there's lots of fans out there who are fans of the comic books and... Superhero films are quite commercial, very commercial. We know we can get a Superman film made if we want, right? Yeah. But back then it was like, well, the toy manufacturers aren't happy. We need to put this character or that character in so they can sell it as an action figure. You've got a producer who's not really anything to do with DC saying he he wants polar bears and a giant spider. You just wouldn't have those problems now. They have other problems now, which I think are of their own making, but they wouldn't have those problems now trying to make a film. Um, The story continues. They kept trying. Um... John Peters tried to do a Batman versus Superman film in the early 2000s, which would have been somewhat influenced by the Dark Knight Returns. Um, the That didn't happen either. I think they had the same problems. And at the same time, Nolan was being lined up to do a Batman reboot, which was kind of bringing everything back to life. And the films that actually did get made was there was Superman Returns in 2006. I don't know if you've seen that film. Yeah, we saw it together with Kate Bosworth and yeah. Kevin Spacey. It's oh, that's shit. right, we did, didn't we? Yeah. See, I was I was quite disappointed by that. I felt like there was that you could make a good film about that. Uh, I thought Kate Bosworth was an absolutely terrible idea for Lois Lane. She does not convince for one second as a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning um, journalist, does she? Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought the way Brandon Routh played the character was quite interesting. I thought that was quite good, but he's not. He's not a star. He's not a movie star. Do you know what I mean? So it just and it was. I thought I thought Kevin Spacey was shit. I thought the whole tone of the film was just baggy and not not very good. So that fell down until until Man of Steel. Um, and those films have been more financially successful. But I mean the fight. The final word is that the death of Superman storylines were used for the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice film. The 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 Zack Snyder atrocity. They were basing that at least to some extent, and then and then in Justice League they are using big elements of that storyline in, in those two films. So in the end, films got made 
with the storyline they were trying to do with Superman Lives, but in a, in quite a different way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, we'll never see it now because not only did it not get made at the time, the storylines have since been used for DC movies. But I, I think it's an interesting example of the, the state of, of superhero movies and the studios in the 90s when they were trying to do this. Yeah, uh, it's a shame because I feel like there's not been a good Superman movie and this could have been the one and it just the timing of it just didn't work. Yeah. I, I would like to see what Robert Rodriguez would have done with it. I mean, because I really do like him as a, a, a director, an action director. Yeah, he's... He's not. He's quite. He's he's got good ideas. I like yeah. what the stuff he tries to put on screen. Yeah, and when he ended up doing a, a a a film based on a graphic novel, I don't imagine he would have done what he did with Sin City to a Superman film. But he's obviously got enough of an interest and a handle on comic books to kind of know what to do with them. So I think that's an opportunity missed. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting story of the dysfunction in Hollywood, and I recommend anyone to watch the documentary because the documentary is really interesting. And if you haven't got the, the patience to watch a feature-length documentary about the making of this, any 10-minute YouTube video where Kevin Smith tells his story, his side of the story, it's really worth watching. I mean, it's Kevin Smith's side of the story. Take it with a pinch of salt. But he, he, he tell, it's very funny the way he tells the story, especially all the John Peters stuff. It's great. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's our one that got away. Um, we will, uh, we'll be back with another one. I hope you enjoyed this one. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, or a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month we're looking at the modern version of the film we covered for our classics feature, you might well ask why anyone would dare revisit such an explosive and controversial film, and having watched this new version, you might wonder why they bothered. The remake Hate Watch for episode 22 is the 2011 version of Straw Dogs. So, James, did you watch, what order did you watch these in? Did you watch the original first and then the remake? Yeah, that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, it's... I mean, the thing that pissed me off with this one is that they obviously couldn't be asked trying to get an accent coach, so they just relocate to rural Mississippi. Hmm. Which was just a real. It felt lazy. So it felt like there's a real lazy. It totally it totally changes the dynamic of the film. The setting of the film, I think, makes changes the story before anyone. I think it almost defeats them before we talk about whether they did a good job of the characterization and the way they tell the story. Relocating this film to Mississippi changes the dynamic the dynamic completely because what it ha what happens is. Uh, it's not a maths professor anymore moving to a to a to a small town. It's a. It's a Hollywood screenwriter moving to a Mississippi small town, but it's the same thing. What you've got, you've got someone from the coastal liberal elite moves to the deep south and they find themselves on opposite sides of a conflict. That's a completely different dynamic. That that turns into almost a political argument. Do you know what I mean? It's like different sides of, of the current political atmosphere in America. And that, that changes the dynamics so much, and I think it defeats the film. I don't know what you thought, but I, th I think that, that change really kind of, I think hampered them. Yeah, just uh, just felt like they were trying to cut corners. Um, yeah, it, it was. Um, it was. It was like we want. Yeah, you know, we want to do straw dogs. It's going to have this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene, and this scene. Uh, let's not take it and set it in England. I don't know. It could be laziness. It could be a, one element of them trying to make it 
not too much like the original film, although everything else is pretty it's much the same film. It's the so same it's film. It's po- it is pointless. Um, They've so not done anything different apart from. I think that's the thing they're trying to do. They're saying, "Oh, let's make it different by setting it in Mississippi," but the rest of the film will be the yeah. same. Yeah. So. See, see, the focus of the original film is on the violence in the air, and I don't think at any point. I don't think. I don't know if you thought about this, but in the in the original, I never thought it was about America versus Britain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It never felt like that. It felt like someone moving to a place where they don't necessarily belong, and it's and it's. It's not that he doesn't belong that he's American. He doesn't belong because this is a rural village in Cornwall and everyone's an outsider. Do you know what I mean? It's really hard to break into this world. And they are very different worlds. But the, the thing that's common to it is the violence that he's hiding from is going to catch up with him here. That's the story of the first film. What this becomes now is someone from the Hollywood liberal elite will move to Mississippi and and people will try to murder each other. What is that? What, what I mean, it, it, someone actually described this as like shit liberal propaganda. And I kind of get where they're coming from because actually, are they trying to say that that small towns in America are full of like crazy murderers, and and that's why the that's why the people on the West Coast and the people who you know who have university educations and kind of do other things are better than them and should shoot them to protect themselves because you, you're telling a very weird story if you're trying to do that. Do you know what I mean? I didn't I didn't understand the point of this. It's um, they it, it didn't do anything. It was just boring. <gasps> Also, the the small the small town atmosphere that they've got is wrong as well because you have a scene where they're watching a, a an American football match and it's the high school football team. They have their own stadium. They've got you know, it might not be a massive stadium, but it's quite a big stadium with a lot of people in it. That's a totally different thing to a tiny fishing village, you know, tiny like Cornish village, right? Where there's not that many people living there, and you go into the pub and it's the same six people. Do you know what I mean? It's a totally different atmosphere. Um, and it also because they have a sheriff who has like a a, a car with with lights and his own gun, it was it wasn't convincing to me either that he would not be able to do anything about these people. Do you know what I mean? The sheriff could just lock these guys up when he when he causes trouble in the bar, he he he, he, he take him to jail. Do you know what I mean? The sheriff just stands there, but they don't they don't explain why the sheriff wouldn't do that. The sheriff's just there and doesn't do anything. They don't even they can't even tell him the story. Why is the sheriff so weak? The sheriff's a decorated war veteran. He's got a gun, and, and and but for some reason, for reasons of plot, doesn't do anything about these guys until it's too late. It's just they just went, they just joined the dots on the story and didn't really uh, like try and make any of it mean anything. What what did you yeah. think? Of, what did you think of the actors they cast? Oh, I don't like Kate Bosworth. I don't particularly like James Marsden. I don't really like any of them. I don't I, like that at all. The thing is. I think not liking them is... Uh, you can not like them in a much more compelling way like in the original. I mean, I know we talked about flaws and problems we had the original, but Dustin Hoffman playing quite a dislikable little shit, he plays it brilliantly. Dustin Hoffman is Dustin Hoffman, right? And I don't think James Marsden kind of stacks up at all to him as an actor. Not, cl- not even close. And no. I don't... And Susan George is actually very good in her role. She was only She's actually only 21 when she plays that part. So she really kind of, you know... She really kind of held her own in that film, whereas Kate Bosworth, I'm, I'm, I'm very much not a fan of. I don't think she was bad in this film. I thought she played the part that she played okay, but I just don't think she's a particularly interesting screen presence. Uh, and I like Alexander Skarsgård. I think he's a very good actor, but again, it changes it too much because he's a he's kind of a tall, muscly, kind of glistening, kind of ex you know high school football hero. It's not the same as the guy that had playing the original Charlie. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. And 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 I have seen storylines about people who were like 
in a small town, you're the quarterback for your high school football team and you're the world's biggest hero. Fast forward 15 or 20 years or whatever, right? And your life is, you're just a bang average person and you can't live with the fact that you're not the biggest hero of the town anymore. Do you know what I mean? But they didn't even go into it. He's just there to be the bad guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, the thing is, I, don't, I didn't really understand the point of it. It was... It was nothing to do with... The, well, it was everything to do with the original, but they didn't... Like, if it's just to make money, then that's fine, but they didn't make its money back. No. So I don't I don't know why they, they cast the people they did if they weren't going to try and, you know, make them... What did they spend? $25 million? It made about twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, so, it, it didn't do very well. So I'm, I'm really kind of confused as to what they were... You see, you see, I mean, a lot of remakes, when they do these remakes, the film, the original films were quite big hits, and you can see why someone would, would, you know, while I don't like it and I think it's really cynical, you can at least see why someone would want to make that kind of money. Straw Dogs, the original, made its money back, but it wasn't like the big commercial hit of 1971, right? That's The French Connection or uh, or Dirty Harry, right? And I, I Straw Dogs, you know, what we talked about in, in, in the classics feature this, this month, this, Straw Dogs is a film that... When you watch the original, you can't just watch. You have to watch. You have to talk about it. You have to think about it. Do you know what I mean? And, and not not in a way that's uh, like. And I think that's possibly a, a criticism that film. But it's kind of this film goes into this really dark territory, and the the story it tells and the way it tells it means you almost have to kind of read what like a, a professor has kind of said about the film to kind of get what, what you're not sure what you feel about it. So it's 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 an odd choice for, to remake if you're not going to. You, if if you're not going to do something like try and have a use the the story as a genuine attempt to describe the state of things in in now that you're filming, I don't I don't see the point. You know, if they, if unless they were going to genuinely try and tell a story of how these different characters kind of or these different kind of people play out in in 2011 America in this town, but they don't. They just go well. This happens. That happens. It's, do you know what I mean? In, in in the original pub, it's like, oh, there's just an atmosphere here. These three guys have totally changed the atmosphere of the pub. The bar in the in the town, it's just a bar in a town where people pay pool. There was no atmosphere yeah. at all. I, I didn't, I didn't get what they were trying to do. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I will say that they did a much better job with the um, with the rape scene because I don't think there's any suggestion in the film that the uh, that the woman is at all complicit. Or anything yeah. like that. The, the the only thing I thought was a bit weird was they had the scene in where they where they because um, they have to have it in in the original. Susan George is walking upstairs and getting ready to have a shower, and she walks past an open window while she's taking the top off to get in the shower, and she hasn't really done it on purpose to taunt guys on the roof. Do you know what I mean? But once she sees them looking at her, and she thinks, "Well, fuck you, it's my house." Do you know what I mean? That part of the original I kind of got that was. That was more realistic. In this, for some reason, Kate Bosworth goes up to the window, opens it, and takes her top off because she's sick of the guys on the the workmen on the roof looking at her. And I thought that was a weird choice. Do you know what I mean? Not, not only was it weird because in, 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 in 2011 America, you can show bones snapping and quite bloody violence, but they decided not to show any nudity. So you, 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 you don't actually see... You know, you kind of see Kate Bosworth from the back. But I thought that was weird. That totally changed the dynamic of that scene to go... That that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that she would, you know, flash the guys on the roof. Do you know what I mean? In in the original, Susan George is like, "I this is my house. It's not right for them to be staring at me when I'm just walking around my house." She doesn't go and flash them to kind of provoke them. But in this, she sort of, do you know what I mean? 
I didn't get that at all. But at least at least in the rape scene, there was no element of that any of this was her fault, you know, well, or that yeah. she was enjoying it. I didn't understand like like if they're not gonna if they don't want it to be as violent and as dark as the original, then why, you've got to do bother? something. Yeah. So and they just didn't they didn't try and do anything that made you go oh wow that was an interesting watch. It was just like let's try and make some money from a film that came out 40 years ago and see if we can do anything with it. And it just it didn't work. Nothing yeah. landed. It's, I mean, I think someone who, who was genuinely looking to examine things could perhaps have done a film about the difference between, you know, the people on the West Coast and the people in the Deep South. I think you would have to be, you would have to tell the story very differently because in by the end, these people are um, attacking someone in their home and that person is justified in fighting back even to the point of killing them. So you have to tell that story very carefully, otherwise you're saying, us people on the West Coast don't like you in, 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 in the Deep South and you're, you're all crazy gun, gun-toting gun nuts and we should probably kill you. That's quite a dangerous message. And as someone who is troubled by Trump-supporting gun owners, even I look at that and go, that's not a good story to tell. Do you know what I mean? You would have to do a proper examination about what it is about someone turning up on that town and the way it provokes them and what do they do to... to, to, to you know, you would have to show an escalation on both sides of that problem. Because I mean, you've been to America, I've been to America. We've been to places where I've probably spoken to people who went and voted Trump five years later after we met them, right? But um, yeah. they, they, they're really nice people. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I think sort of the earth. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 but they've been brought up to believe some weird shit. Do you know what I mean? And you've got some crazy people who are who are dangerous, and you've got some people with guns who shouldn't have guns. So you could, you could do an examination of that, but you'd have to do it with a lot more subtlety and a lot more actual thought going into the script than happened here. Do you know what I mean? No, I agree. Um, and, and I think the dynamic in America is really different because I don't think there's any kind of debate in America about if someone breaks into your house, you should shoot them. Do you know what I mean? That's not a debate in America, is it? Yeah. Um, so it's just... I think... It, it's a big one to take on. It's, I mean, it's on a par with someone remaking Clockwork Orange. You've really got to wonder what it is you've got to say about this story if you're going to do it again, you know? At least when someone remakes an old horror movie, you go, well, they shouldn't, but at least you can understand when they remake an old horror movie. I say, well, we can, we can do more with the gore effects these days, and people like horror movies, let's make a horror movie. I get that. I don't really get what they thought they were going to achieve this time. Yeah. No, it was pointless. Yeah, it's it point, pointless. But it, the film itself is pointless. I was I was slightly I was intrigued by why they bothered. <laughs> I was genuinely interested. I'd like to know, you know, if if I could get the people who wrote and directed this film to one side and buy them a drink and get them talking, I'd love to know what it is they thought they were trying to do with this movie. Because um, that that did make me curious. But the rest of it was. Um, it's an example of, you know, a film we had... Tr- the original is a film we both had trouble with, and then someone to make a film that takes all the original thought and context out of it. It's quite a, quite a baffling idea. Really.
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month brings you a deep dive into the long career of influential but unsung Hollywood stalwart Walter Hill. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. It's all gone to shit. <laughs> Head's gone.